0: Welcome back to Real Voices of the Game Productions. I'm Dave D'Agostino, and I'm joined by my Hall of Fame co-host, Jim Cott. This is Cott's Corner. Before we get going with our show today, I just want to make sure I thank our 15,700 subscribers. Continue to download, listen, like, subscribe. And I'm going to give you two extra tasks. I'm sorry for that, but rate and review. Much like baseball, we battle the algorithms and analytics here today. So if you rate and review, we'll be able to continue to give you great content like this show, Cott's Corner. Make sure you stream us on Apple, Amazon, Spotify, or Stitcher. If you have a different streaming apparatus, let us know, and I'll subscribe to that as well. Engage us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. I did our one question of the day already this morning on Facebook, and I'll get back to the other 300 sometime this afternoon. Everybody will get a reply back. Today's was on the gurus that evaluate Town out there, um, the difference between recruiting and evaluating. So make sure you take a look at that. To our 72 countries now. Ryan LaVarnway was on our show the other day. I kind of joked with him, we're not in Israel yet. He got us into Israel. We appreciate that. So we're now in 72 countries, grassroots baseball, all the way to Major League Baseball front offices. All we're trying to do is build a better baseball IQ here for our audience. And as my good friend Kevin Kernan says, my co host on Coach and Kernan and co founder of this production group, um, he says, We're beholden to no one. So speak your mind. And if people don't want to hear it, don't listen. I kind of laugh at Kevin. He's very blunt with that stuff. But, uh, He's, uh, he's, a, he's a gem. But, Jim, welcome back to your show. We're glad to have you back today.
1: Well, thank you. Glad to be back. Glad to hear the name Ryan LaVarnway. You know, John Stuper, who was a teammate of mine in St. Louis, went on to coach for 27 years at Yale. And uh, Ryan was one of his star players, along with his battery mate, Craig Breslow, who uh, logged a few years in the big leagues. So that name is not strange to me at all. And I'm uh, glad to have him be a part
0: of the, of the podcast yeah, Ryan was a tremendous guest. He's looking to get into broadcasting, and I did advise him that if he was looking for a role model, you'd be perfect for him. And he's a former All-American there at Yale, catcher in, a little bit of outfield. And uh, I think based on his interview with us, I, I see a bright future for that young man, and, and I hope he uses you as a, as a role model to follow. You certainly, as as we've talked about in the past, uh, you say there's there's some differences between getting into the broadcasting field today as maybe there were when you got into it. Um, what are some things that, that maybe you had at your disposal that Ryan should seek out?
1: Well, I was so fortunate. I worked with Dick Enberg, Dick Stockton, uh, Bill White, then Bob Costas, of course. And John Madden helped me. And there were producers and directors like the late great Harry Coyle who taught me, you know, kid, you got eight seconds to get your thought in and out. Uh, you don't, you know, and he would say if, uh, if it's a close game, I want to know who's on the bench, who's in the bullpen, what the manager's thinking. If it's a, a high scoring affair, why tell me all the stories you've got. So, you know, I, I was trained to be a broadcaster, just like training to be a pitcher. And I think today too often they just throw former athletes into the booth and it's not fair to them that they don't really give them, uh, the training necessary because it's, a uh, it's an acquired skill, just like uh, just like pitching or hitting or playing the game was.
0: Yeah, do you find that? And this may be unfair to ask, and but do you find that people that are in broadcasting for a lifetime that may not be coming from the sports side th- th- would that be offensive to them that they you know people, we feel like we can just throw a former athlete in there and they can do that job?
1: Well, I think the pure play-by-play guys, and I, I know uh, that people have been kind enough to me to say, you know, uh, you should be considered for the, for the broadcasting uh, Ford Frick Award. And I said, you know, I always felt that that should be reserved for the lifers, you guys going back to Red Barber, Ernie Harwell, Herb Carneal in Minnesota. And I think the play-by-play guys uh, accept it. Uh, that this gives them an added dimension from someone who has actually played the game. Uh, So I I don't think there's, uh, uh, as long as the former player is brought in as an analyst, then I don't think there will be a lot of animosity. At least I've never felt it.
0: Yeah. Well, someone like yourself, who I I always enjoyed listening to you uh, when you were calling a game and you put the time into it, like, as you said, like you did as a pitcher, That, to me, as I'm thinking out loud, what a wonderful thing Major League Baseball would be able to do if they really wanted to help former players get into this field um, and do really well in it. That would be a great class to start teaching these young men as they come through the game and looking for their second career to have somebody like yourself um, teaching a class, mentoring, uh, being kind of that lead, uh, lead generator into that next line of work like broadcast. Show them the right way to do it, like you would do as a pitcher
1: well you know i volunteered to do that the mlb network uh you know just to wasn't looking for a job but uh, i volunteered to to do that and you're exactly right i mean when i first started doing college games for espn uh they had a lady named andrea kirby i think andrea was one of the first female anchors on sports tv and she trained for years broadcasters you know uh uh, how to how to combine looking at the camera, looking at your partner, the mechanics of being a broadcaster. And I got a lot of help from her. So I don't know if uh, if the different networks have that. I know I sat down uh, with Justin Morneau uh, when he started doing Twins games. And uh, David Cohn and John Flaherty, uh, you know, they've always mentioned the time we spent together that was helpful for them. So, yeah, I, I think there definitely could uh, – could be a class or a, a seminar from networks as to, to how to train athletes. Uh, you know, the mechanics of being a broadcaster and getting their point across in a economical amount of time. So they don't step on the play by play guy who is calling the action.
0: Yeah. Well, I, w- I would love that. Cause as great as you were as a pitcher, I think you were just as great and meticulous as a broadcaster. So I, I'm, I'm a, uh... I tend to throw our hat in the ring for an awful lot every show, so I'm tossing another hat in the ring to MLB to to get this going. I would love to see some guys follow your lead and and do what well, you I did, or at least come sure close. Um, now we had talked about, uh, you know, you, you and I talk about broadcasting, but we we talk about the rule changes and and I never thought about this. I thought about it as it affected the player, the pitcher, and the hitter, uh, and maybe some of the infielders. But how how is things like the the, the pitch clock? for instance, how would that have affected you in the booth or how does it affect current broadcasters in the booth?
1: Well, I I think it's having a positive effect on every area of the game with the exception of the vendors. Now, when I went to my quick pitch in Chicago, uh, you know, I would get it and throw it, get it and throw it. And it was frustrating to the hitters, which I was happy about. And I was, you know, I pitched several games in the mid-70s there. And uh, I think at one time I had – 10 or 12 games in under an hour 40. And when I was warming up down the left field line in Comiskey Park, the vendors were getting ready to sell their wares. And and in a not a mean-spirited way, they would holler out, oh, no, you're pitching tonight. We're we're not going to make any money. The game's going to be over with too quickly. But other than that, I I think the analysts, uh, we talked about the mechanics of broadcasting, The analysts uh, have been challenged that they, as I was trained, get your thought to the microphone and out in eight seconds between pitches. And uh, that allows the play by play guy. He's the one who does the who and what. And the analyst is the person who does the how and why. So uh, you you need to train yourself to get that in and out and keep the game flowing. And I think this uh, this pitch clock has had the most positive effect in all areas of the game uh that I've heard in a long time. I mean, the Twins beat the Yankees last night 11 to 2. Uh one of my favorite pitchers, Joe Ryan, uh you know, was the winning pitcher and they played that game at 2:20. Well, when I was doing games that was unheard of. I remember doing Twins games in the late 80s and I would get home and say, "Wow, that game took 2 hours and 40 minutes." That is really unusual. We used to play in 220, 225. Well, now they're getting back to that. And I, I think it's a positive thing all around.
0: From a from a broadcaster standpoint, in terms of duration, I'm imagining that's a much better evening for you because those hours add up over the, the lifetime of a, a season. In terms of the the mechanics you talked about, the, the eight seconds to get across with the pitch clock, I'm, I'm assuming that makes it much harder and they've got to be cleaner in the booth.
1: Yeah, you 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 do. You have to, uh, you, you know, you have to be prepared. You have to train yourself. You can't, you know, little things like, uh, you know, starting to get into a story with two outs in the inning, and then all of a sudden the innings over, your story is cut off. So it's just little things like that that you have to learn to do at a brisk pace. Uh, I've always said for years in the booth that. Uh, for example, a, a ball hit to an infielder with a couple of men on. I'd say you know baseball is a relatively slow-paced game, but on the field things happen in a hurry. You have to anticipate. You have to think quickly. Where am I going to go if the ball's hit to me? And the same thing is true in the booth. It carries right on. You know, you just have to. I think what it's what it's going to have a positive effect on. It's going to eliminate. The reams of information that broadcasters are handed to talk about how Joe Smith hits 350 against lefties in a day game. Yeah. Man, we don't need that stuff. As John Madden taught me, just watch the game and tell people what you're seeing. And I think uh, it's having that positive effect. We're seeing pitchers that don't have as much time to think. They get the ball, okay, what's my next pitch? And I think it increases their effectiveness. And also the guys standing in the outfield for years, we used to get pictures on TV and say, look at the outfielders. I mean, they could be talking on their cell phones between pitches. It was taking so much time. And now over a course of 162 games, think of the the hours that, it, that they won't spend in the field that they will in past years. So it would have an effect on keeping them fresher as well. I, I heard one pitcher, this was interesting, I think it was Kentamaeda with the twins that said he was not getting as much time or he had to get adjusted to uh, getting back out on the mound in, in a short period of time. You're used to sitting in the in the dugout for you know 10 minutes or whatever. And I always uh, use that as, as kind of an advantage in that uh, as quickly as I worked, if the opposing pitcher had a long inning and uh and got out of it, then I would say to Brian Downing, my catcher, I said, Now B give me the signs quick. I said, We want to try to get three outs as quickly as we can and get that guy back out on the mound again, especially yeah. on a hot day. So you can use that to to your advantage. Uh but in general I think it's it's gonna make uh it's gonna have a positive effect on the game entirely
0: yeah well, that's a whole paradigm shift for me because I didn't even think about the broadcasting booth as having to train just just as equally hard as you know pitchers and hitters did to adjust to this we had We had talked about the vendors and there had been some talk and i I kind of read it a little bit, but I saw about how groups were trying to adjust beer sales based on the speed of the game now. Um, never thought about the vendors again that my limited view on the game, but how how is how are vendors affected by this?
1: Well, yeah, I heard, I read now that they're going to increase, uh, the, the twins are one of the teams that's doing it. They're going to increase beer sales through the eighth inning. They used to cut it off in the seventh inning. So, you know, here I am, I'm thinking about this wholesome great American pastime and we're using alcohol sales and gambling to promote the game. Yeah. I don't think, I don't think that's a good thing, <laughs> but, uh, but I guess, you know, everything is, is revenue driven and, uh, they want to sell more beer, so they're extending it into the uh, into the eighth inning.
0: Yeah, now I have I have people that I know that do their vendors in minor league stadiums. I'm wondering if it's the same. <clears throat> excuse me, in the MLB where they get paid hourly. So I'm wondering how much of that gets affected. Also, the games are done quicker, and it cuts into their wage a little bit as well.
1: Yeah, I, I thought that mainly it was it was commissions. You know, the more they can get oh. out there and sell popcorn and whatever, but they probably get a base hourly. Uh, hourly wage as well.
0: Yeah. Well, yeah, we'll have to keep an eye on that, but I agree the gambling and the alcohol is to me is uh, maybe, maybe that's a, maybe we're throwbacks and a little old fashioned, but I don't think we should be leading with that with baseball um, to, to bring it, bring it back where we need to. Uh, We had, we had a, we had another, uh, you you have a close relationship with this individual. Um, Unfortunate incident in baseball wasn't intentional, but, Goes back to what we talk about a little bit with focusing on, you know, getting pitchers. Their first thing should not be velocity; it should be command. Um, young young man, Kyle Farmer, you know, MLB player, um, hit in the face last night. Was it la- last night? Correct. Two nights um, ago. Two nights ago. Um, and you you have a relationship uh, with with him in some capacity. Could you kind of paint the picture for our audience. I mean, obviously, we're audio here, but.
1: Yeah, well, yeah. Lucas Giolito, you know, uh, not intentional at all, but a fastball got away from him and it hit Kyle right in the face. He uh, That was Wednesday. He's had uh, surgery on his lower lip and I believe I understood where they were able to put the, the his teeth kind of back in place. I don't know that he lost that many of them, but uh, I don't know how long he'll be out of action. But uh, I think back to some of the experiences I've had, of course, I knew how it basically ended the career. Tony Conigliaro, the promising young Red Sox slugger back in the 60s. And then teammate of mine, Jimmy Hall, was hit by a fastball from Bo Belinsky. And uh, uh, I think it, it shattered part of his cheekbone. He was never the same hitter after that, nor was Paul Blair for the Orioles when hit, he got hit by a Ken Tatum pitch. So uh, to me, I'm looking ahead to... Kyle for his next at bat, which is going to be the most important. And I can relate to that in a way, because in 1962, I got hit in the mouth by a one hopper right back at the mound, and I I ended up losing seven teeth. And this was on a Tuesday night. We worked on a four-man rotation in those days. So they were going to put me on the uh, injured list, call it the disabled list. And, And teams were hesitant to do that, particularly the twins, who were very frugal. Because if you put a guy on the disable list, you still had to pay him, and then you had to pay the guy taking his place. But this was severe enough that said, we're going to disable you. And I said, well, I really don't want you to do that. Uh, A great left-hand pitcher named Herb Score, who was Rookie of the Year in 1955, was hit in the eye, line drive off the bat of Gil McDougald. And he never was the same pitcher after that. And my thinking was, I want to get back on the mound as quickly as possible. So I started on Saturday afternoon in Cleveland. And wouldn't you know, the first two balls of the game, uh, Willie Tasby was the leadoff hitter, was a one hopper right back to me. Yep. And that cured me just like that. So I never had any phobia about a ball hitting you know back at me and getting hit again. And that'll be the challenge for Kyle Farmer, you know, once he heals up. And he's a... He's a tough young guy. I'm sure he'll, he'll do fine. But those first couple at bats are going to be very challenging for him because you're going to have that image of that ball coming in and hitting you in the face. And from a hitting standpoint, you know, we're seeing a lot more, particularly hand injuries. Fortunately, not as many head injuries. But with the velocity being up, hitters are so intent on starting their motion if you look, I'd say Josh Donaldson. As soon as the pitcher starts winding up, he's already kind of beginning to dive into the ball. And we had a hitter um, uh, two days ago. I, I His name escapes me right now, but he was hit on the wrist. He's going to miss some time. You know, years ago when you, when you took a stride as a hitter, your, your leg went forward, but your upper body kind of turned your back to the pitcher. So yeah. your hands were back behind you. Well, now everybody starts out, the hands go first and they're already facing the pitcher and the hands and the wrists are so exposed and we're seeing a lot more injuries. And I'm sure in Kyle's case, the last thing you expect is a pitch coming up and in because uh, pitchers don't brush hitters off the plate anymore in a legitimate way. So it's a complete surprise when a pitch is coming in like that. Of course, that was very unintentional. And, uh, and I uh, hope Kyle, uh, I, I know, uh, He's not able to talk yet because of the work in his, uh, on his uh, jaw and his and his uh, dental and his teeth, uh, but he is on the ten day IL. But I hope he can get back out there. I'm sure they'll have some some kind of a face guard, uh, that they used for for hitters that had injuries like that before, so he can get back in action.
0: Yeah, I hope so as well. I, I two questions off of that one, you know, there is a technique to moving guys off the plate. It starts from the bottom up, though, as far as moving the feet. Could you talk about that a little bit, how you were coached on moving guys off the plate? Not not beaning guys, not, you know, how were you taught as a, as a young pitcher coming up to move guys off the plate?
1: Well, I carried this on into my coaching and that uh, what, we, what we worked on is Uh, When I coached the Reds in the mid 80s, when a pitcher got done with his batting practice session in spring training, I had them come down to the bullpen where I had a double sided, a double flapped helmet, which switch hitters would use. And I said, I'm going to stand in the box and I'm going to lift my lead arm up level with my armpit. And I want you to throw five pitches under my armpit and make me move my feet off the plate. I would do that left-handed, and then I'd do it right-handed. I said, if you don't practice the brushback or the push-off-the-plate pitch, uh, and then all of a sudden you're, you're called on to do it during the game, you're not going to have command of it. I mean, you have to have control of that just like you do your fastball or your breaking pitches. So, you know, we kind of trained uh, with that. I remember in spring training we had a mattress hanging from this iron – from this steel, you know, looked like monkey bars in a playground, and the mattress hung down, and there was a little square up and in for a righty and a lefty, and you went down there, and it was like being at the county fair trying to throw a ball through the hole, and you would practice throwing that pitch, which was what would be up and in, but under the armpits for a hitter, and that's the kind of things we did to really work on that pitch.
0: And I don't think they're doing that anymore. We we can barely no, get them to take I, the
1: I None of the subtle little things uh, that I found out being in spring training, they they just don't do that much anymore. And and that's why it's not the player's fault. I blame baseball, really. If they, if they don't want to spend the kind of time on the subtle things that are necessary to be the best player you can be, then you can't blame the players. I mean, I tie it quickly into Javi Baez, who – You know, hit a ball. He thought it was a home run, so he looked in the dugout, started celebrating. Then he ends up on second base, where uh, you know he likes to defend himself and say, "Well, that's where I would have been anyway." And then he lost track of the outs and and ran into an inning-ending double play. Well, it's just because players are not schooled to hey, when you hit the ball, you don't look in the dugout to celebrate. You run around first base, and and if it's bobbled, you go to second base. You keep your mind. On the game and what's happening, and we're kind of letting those things uh, slide.
0: Glad you brought that up. I had that down in side notes because base running is a pet peeve for me. And even when we're working with our youth groups, the first thing they do before they before the pitcher gets on the mound before they take their lead as a third base coach, I always raise my hands and I did this as a college coach too. I want a verbal and visual on the number of outs every single pitch. Um, yeah, that way they're they're letting me know and. Learning how to take base running, to me, making outs on the bases is, is, should be punishable by law, I think, right now. That's one of my... Yeah, it,
1: it's, a, it's a, one of the phases of the game that has, has hit rock bottom, base running. And I, as a pitcher, I was reminded by, um, I think it was the co-author of my book, Doug Lyons, my last book, that I was used as a pinch runner 85 times in my career. And then I was used as a pinch hitter. Well, in in batting practice, uh, I went to the outfield grass, but, you know, as if I was on first base and it was 110 feet from home plate. So I wasn't in any danger of getting hit with a ball. But I would practice running the bases from first to third, from first to second, from first all the way around to home uh, to train your body on how to make the turn at second base, how to make the turn at third base. So again, those are skills, uh, that are not hard, but you have to work on them. Uh, so when you get in the game, um, you know, they become second nature to them. And I, I just don't see teams spending, uh, that kind of time anymore. They're, they're more into, uh, meetings and launch angle and velocity. And they turn the game into a science project, which is really kind of sad because I, I'm so happy. I was talking to a, uh, a friend of mine, a retired attorney who's in his late 80s. And I said, Jack, I'm so grateful that I grew up in an era that I did and that I played in an era that I did because we had to think for ourselves, train ourselves. I never had a pitching coach till I was in the big leagues. And I really look back at that and saying that that really uh, made your job and your craft worthwhile as opposed to today where you so got too many people that have never played that are telling the guys that play how to play, and it doesn't make any sense. And it's it's too bad. It's not the player's fault. It's the administration's fault.
0: Yeah, they over-legislate everything, and it's uh, it's turning it into a dividend, like a stock, and that the, the baseball players are not like hey,
1: Let's Let's talk about this new – I saw Tyler Kettner by yeah. Side of the New York Times, and Tyler
0: wrote this article on the sweeper. I've heard that pitch coming back. Talk, talk about that one. Well,
1: I I laugh at it because it's kind of like in golf, you know, there's just some basic fundamentals that you do in golf, but yet there's hundreds of teachers out there that, that have new terminology. Well, the sweeper in the sixties, we call it the slurve because it was a half slider and a half curve, or it was called a nickel curve, which meant it was a cheap curve because you had the overhand 12 o'clock, six o'clock curve. And then you had the the slider, which was like Mariano Rivera's cutter, which had just a little bit of lateral movement to it, but it was just a, a couple ticks slower than your fastball. Well, now they've been throwing this pitch that they call a slider for years, which has been hit out of the ballpark more than any other pitch going and all of a sudden they're calling it a sweeper. Well, the, the sweeper has been around for years, but we, we call it the slurb. And if you could, uh, if you could relate, if you're sitting at home or you have a baseball, the slider, you want your hand behind the ball for as long as it can be. And then it's a downward promotion, pronation of the wrist. Johnny Sain used to call it turn and pull. You turn the ball just a touch to the outside for your cutter or slider Whereas the slurve, you, you have your hand almost around the side of the ball, and it's similar to turning a doorknob. That's actually created a lot of elbow issues because of that. But now all of a sudden they're coming up with this new new term called the sweeper, and that pitch has been around for
0: sixty years. So is, it, is the a sweeper closer to the slider, curve, or somewhere in between?
1: It's in between. That's why we call it a slurve. Yeah. Uh, but it's it's more of a three quarter curve. Uh, the other term we had for it was a short curve because instead of the big rainbow 12 to 6, it was it was faster than a curve, but slower than a slider. And it had a break. You know, we used to practice kind of tilting the ball to the side and using different grip pressure. And then we practiced from 40-45 feet, and you actually would end up with three different breaking pitches just by the way you turned your wrist and applied your finger pressure. So you, you had a fastball overhand curve, and then you have the slider, which is the cutter, and then you would have the slurve, which is a blend or a hybrid of those two. And did, did you throw the slurve? I threw it a lot to lefties, the lefties like Reggie Jackson and Boog Powell, because they were they had a tendency to kind of pull that front foot out, and you didn't want to leave a pitch inside to them because that was right in there, you know, they just dropped the barrel on it and they could turn and hit a home run on that very easily. So I didn't throw a lot of curves to left-hand hitters, the overhand curve through those more to righties, but the slurve or the sweeper that they're calling now, you know, it starts almost at the hitter and then it just gradually works its way. It has a big lateral break. And for me, it would be much more effective pitch for a lefty to a lefty and a righty to a righty. If you throw that pitch as a righty to a left-hand hitter, you're giving him an awfully good look at the ball
0: yeah. coming out of his hand. I'm visualizing so, that myself as I was a switch batter and as a lefty seeing that. Um, just my eyes got wide, seeing it yeah, against well, the that's righty.
1: Why I'm sure in your case, at switch hitters, that's why they they switch hit because now that breaking ball isn't as uh, intimidating to him coming from a. You're hitting a left hand you're hitting left handed against a right hand pitcher, so that sweeper, you got a really good look at it.
0: Yeah. I didn't appreciate it until I started seeing breaking pitches later on in in life. What was your when you threw the when you threw the sweeper, what was your arm angle? Was it different than your other your curve or your Well,
1: my, my arm angle in general was maybe a, a touch uh, to the three quarter side. I didn't come and very few pitchers do come straight over the top. But no, it, it wasn't as much my arm angle. I wanted that to be the same. It was the, it was the tilt of the wrist. I still have the ball that Johnny Sain invented called the spinner. And it's a little wooden handle. And a, a baseball is attached to it with a screw that goes all the way through it. And you can sit and spin the ball with your, with your pitching hand. And then you kind of hold that at different angles. And it gives you an idea. It, it's probably a little difficult for people just hearing it on audio. Uh, but yeah, the, the arm angle could be the same, but the way the hand and the wrist are positioned on the ball, that's what changes. Yeah. So let's say 12 o'clock is a straight over the top straight backspin fastball. Now, if I tilted my left hand a little to the left, that would be over uh, maybe 11 o'clock. And then with the same action downward pronation of the wrist, I get a little bit of spin and break from left to right. And then if I turn my hand a little more, a little more pressure on the middle finger, a little more pull, now I have a bigger curve, not as much velocity. And you just keep tinkering with the, you know, I I say in pitching, there's not enough emphasis put on the grip and the wrist. Pitchers don't go on the disabled list with a a strained wrist. They go on the injured list with an elbow or a shoulder. And your wrist and your hand are the only thing holding on to the baseball. So if you spend more time with that and how to spin it uh, instead of throwing it a hundred miles an hour, I think you you got a chance to to be an effective pitcher.
0: Yeah, not novel approach, right? And, and what's funny is the the scientists that are tinkering with the game. Matt, what you're describing right now is simple physics. Um, you know, applying pressure to baseball and yeah, you focus on that. We'll give them the science if they focus on the stuff you're talking about. Um, just yeah. physics. Are there simple exercises that kids can do out there to strengthen the ability to, or enhance the ability to, you know, uh, spin the ball, uh, develop better grips, things that you found. I know you talked last time a little bit about how you just, you walk around holding the ball in your hand. And I tried doing that. My older son is doing that now. And it's, he said it's helped three weeks in. He's, uh, he's able to do it. Yeah. Uh, yeah.
1: Yeah. Well, that, that's that's hard. I mean, if you're a, if you're a younger person, it's hard. Be. I always practice gripping the ball by curling my index and middle finger around the ball with my thumb off the ball. Now, I usually have to, you know, like when you're reading a book, you kind of lick your fingers, turn the page. You have to get a little tackiness on those fingers to be able to to hold it. But it it really strengthens your fingers by doing that. I'm learning that now in my uh, guitar playing lessons because as you bend that wrist the other way, you have to build up those uh, tendons and ligaments so you can, you can bend that arm. And the same thing with fingers so you can bend those fingers. And then uh, the thumb is very loose. If you did an experiment holding a ball and then took your thumb on your pitching hand and pinched it as tight as you could till the white in the thumb would show... And now you start uh, flipping your wrist back and forth. The ball doesn't move that fast. But if you curl those fingers and lay your thumb on the ball, so Whitey Ford taught me in gripping my fastball, now your wrist works twice as fast and you get a lot more spin. And uh, like those things are kind of a foreign language, I think, to pitchers today because, or coaches even, because I think they're, a bit more interested in velocity than spin, but our, you know, our uh, emphasis was always on spin and that's how we, we practice to try to get more of it.
0: Yeah. Well, it won't be lost on our audience. We, we've got a bright audience. Uh, we're helping build the IQs, but uh, they crave your stuff. So I, I appreciate you going in depth on you know, that. You know,
1: the, the other thing right along those lines is when you, when you first started, asking me, are there exercises that a young pitcher could do? And I thought you were going to say about velocity, but one of the one of the good uh, exercises to really help you uh, gain velocity without going into the weight room and, and where we pick up the paper and read every day where this guy's needs more time. He's got a stiff back. He's got a, a strained oblique. Well, it was the old Warren Spahn exercise of picking that ball up like an infielder, take a hop, step and jump and and one hop it into a wall or whatever you have, start at about 40 feet and then work your way back. Uh, Louis Tian and I used to do it from 150 feet. Hop, step and throw uh, like you're one hopping as an outfielder into the base. And if you do that over a period of time, giving your arm proper rest, uh, you know, between times, you'll actually, I think, gain what I would call elasticity and length in the pitching muscles.
0: Huh. What about the one hop helps out? What's, what's the significance of that? The one, well, hop, think, one hop on the that throw. That,
1: you're, when you're on the pitching mound, uh, your foot's on the rubber and you push off the rubber. So if you're on flat ground, uh, you know, and you just take that little hop step, it, it gives your body some momentum uh, in it, starting, you know, making your moves toward the plate. I think that's why we've talked about our good friend, James Matthews over in New Zealand, who uh, I met when he was nine and now he's 15. And he, I think he did a little cricket bowling as a lot of Kiwis did. And if you watch the cricket bowlers, they get a running start when they throw the ball and uh, the bowlers they call. Yeah. Them. And so I think that, that hop, step and jump and, and hopping toward the target which gives you a little bit of a, a momentum start. It's the same thing that you want to have on the mound, except you're keeping your foot on the pitching rubber. It gets you over the front side. One of my favorite pictures I have that the Twins use shows me uh, facing home plate. I think it's a pitch in the 65 World Series. And you know I'm facing the hitter, but my, my arm has already released the ball, and you can almost see my number from home plate because I've gotten over my front side. And that's what that hop, step, and throw motion does for you.
0: What about at the end, and before we get into the load management, what about at the end of it, where you said you're throwing it on one hop, like you're throwing it from the outfield to a cutoff? What's significant about that with the release?
1: Well, because I think when you're pitching, you're throwing from a a mound. You're throwing from an elevated mound, and you... I see the, the uh, trend in some cases today as they do this long toss where they throw way up in the air. They're looping it like a rainbow. Yeah. Uh, I don't know uh, the significance of that or how it helps, but I, I always felt that hop, step, and a jump, and one hop it is similar to standing on the mound and trying to throw the ball at the knees to a hitter. Uh, that makes sense. So you're throwing from up to down. You know, you use when you're on the mound, you usually really use the mound. You use gravity because your, your body is going from 12 inches off the ground down to flat level. And so the hop, step and uh, uh, hop, step and throw, uh, you know, kind of uh, builds in that exercise as if you were on the mound.
0: That makes sense. Yeah. That's no, a great visual for this audio, too. You painted a great picture of both sides of it. We we had chatted before the show um, about this load management craze. It's across all sports right now. Rarely do we see an athlete play 82 games in basketball, 162 in baseball, or a full 17 now in NFL football. But um, we talked Tom Kelly and Kirby Puckett home games. Uh, Share a little bit about the philosophy of the Twins back then and, and your thoughts on this load management craze.
1: Yeah, it's, you know, if you're if you were a Twins fan back in the 80s and you were uh, taking your young son to a game, the big attraction was Kirby. You want to see Kirby Puckett. So Tom Kelly was adamant about, you know, barring any kind of a serious injury, he was never going to give Kirby Puckett a day off for a home game. Well, last year, I think that Carlos Correa and Byron Buxton missed, I don't know, six to eight, I think, games, home games, just uh, not because of injury, just because, you know, they, this load management they pay attention to. And I, I think that's kind of unfair to the fan. Uh, a little golf issue, I thought, which was so cool, John Rahm won the Masters. And now he's playing at Hilton Head this week. Well, you know, his brain could probably use a week off. He is such a first-class young man. He played in the Pro-Am on Wednesday. And then they said, do you think you, you needed a week off? He said, I did, but I think the kids that come out to this tournament would have wanted to see the Masters champion. So he said, I felt it was my obligation to them to come and play, which uh, good for John Rahm. But I think, I think that's what I don't know that management or managers put that much thought into that. Uh, but I think years ago, managers, if they did give their players a day off, they, for example, we usually had Sunday double headers and then Monday was a day off. So then if you went into a, a, a visiting town on Tuesday, well, you would give one of your everyday players that needed rest, you'd give him that day off. So he actually had Monday and Tuesday, but never for a home game because, uh, it's like I've said about Byron's uh, Byron Buxton, who I love and just is a great uh, full-out player. But he is—he's built like a thoroughbred, and it's easy for him to get injured. Uh, the Twins protect him, and they think maybe he—you just play hundred games. Well, if I'm taking my son to a game in Minnesota, I want to see Byron. I want him to see Byron Buxton. So I don't want him to take just a normal load management day off on the day I'm going to the game.
0: (laughs) Oh, I agree. The the money that's being spent by these families and uh, where did we lose this? Like where did that because as you were discussing the golfer, um, that's the mindset I think of of, it's definitely of you and of me. It's of our audience and probably run right through all of our our other hosts and co-hosts where did we lose that? Is that a baseball thing? Is that a sports thing? Is it a societal thing?
1: Uh, I, th- I think it might be us. It, it's kind of a combination. I mean, we, we have hothoused or coddled our, our athletes so much. And again, I don't blame the athlete. I think it's, it's just the way they were trained. If, if I were trained in today's game with the same skills I would fall into the same trap because I wouldn't know any better. But I I realized and I was fortunate to have, uh, you know, coaches like Johnny saying that, hey, my arm's a little stiff today, a little sore. Good, let's go out and play catch. (laughs) And all of a sudden you'd go out and throw and, hey, I feel pretty good. So, you know, we learned that, uh, you know, that playing every day, pitching every day, keep going unless you have a really – broken bone or some kind of injury. And I think nowadays the the trend is with all the money involved, oh, I feel a little twinge in my shoulder. I better not throw today. And, you know, like I said, if I were a a young athlete playing today, I probably would fall into that same trap. But that's why I'm kind of happy that I played in the era that I did because I didn't have to deal with that stuff.
0: Yeah, no, it's, it makes sense how and why you, you mentioned that. And I, and I agree with you totally. What about, um, you know, the, these guys you mentioned coddled, obviously with social media, there's many more distractions nowadays. And these players seem to be locked in it to, you know, I guess it's part of the way they've grown up, but also part of their brand. Um, are they, does the sensitivity of hearing and seeing the, you know, they have a poor outing now they see it 10 million times is I think that fragility weighs into them taking more days off.
1: It, it very well could. I mean, uh, I think it, I think it permeates our entire society with the social media and the effect it's having on the middle health, mental health of our, of our young people, whether it's bullying, uh, they, they are exposed to so much, uh, outside, uh, pressure, uh, that we never dealt with, um, I think I mentioned before, my mother saw me pitch one game, game two of the 65 World Series. And when the game was over, the last out was a line drive hit right back to me and the fans were jumping up and celebrating. My mother looked at my dad and said, oh, did they win? And then uh, when they say to where we heard your son is 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 a good baseball player, she said, well, I've heard that. I think he's the one that throws the ball so they could hit it. Well, I use those as examples that, my parents weren't hounding over my shoulder saying, You gotta throw harder, you gotta throw more strikes, you gotta do this, you gotta do that. They just let me be a kid and develop into whatever I was gonna be come. And uh I think that's kinda missing today where too many parents uh you know, they, they're they're treating their child to live vicariously that life that they were never able to lead.
0: Yeah. No, I, I would agree with that totally. That's the the world of social media—it's more about what you can, what you can get others to think that you're capable of or that you're doing, rather than reality of what you're doing. Well, I, I
1: think just to add to that, I think the the financial rewards for for playing now—I think that affects. Say you're a 16 year old kid, and uh, unfortunately you're asked to try to throw 92, 93 miles an hour, and you're not capable of doing that. Then, but if you do feel a little bit of a strain you're thinking about, or your parents are the money that could be out there. So you, you certainly it's the tendency is to kind of overly protect yourselves with, from a pitching standpoint, what they don't realize, and nobody wants to, to hear the way we did it because they, they think that they uh, that their way today is better. Is that if they actually threw more, but not at full throttle, uh, their arm would be better; it would be healthier, but they don't buy into that.
0: Yeah, no, the, the I community. heard an
1: interesting expression yesterday. I think my wife used it. We were, my friend Jack and I were talking about uh, attitudes, and uh, and Margie said, "Yeah, it's like an egomaniac with an inferiority complex," and that's kind of what some of the uh, analytics guys are now. You know, they the ego comes from. You guys really didn't know what you were doing. We know better, and the inferiority is that they know they couldn't do it better physically, but they're trying to convince today's players: if you do it my way, it'll be a lot better for it for you than the way they did it fifty years ago. And that's yeah. not always true. There's a blend there somewhere, but they're they dig their heels in and think their way is the only way.
0: Yeah, and with, without empathy, understanding both sides of it, nothing's ever going to get. Accomplished with it, so I like that phrase by by Margie. We'll give her we'll give her credit for that. I've got a load management question. I know we're, we're running uh, close to time, but um, the irony of load management is they're trying to protect the players' bodies and minds, I guess. But again, I hate to use the phrase "back when you played" or "back when I played." We practiced hard. I remember practicing hard on days of games, whether it was infield practice, long toss, base running. Is the fact that these guys aren't forced to practice hard, um, do you think that contributes to the injuries that we're seeing nowadays?
1: Oh, no question. Uh, I may have mentioned uh, my friend Jack McKeon, who was 91. He was at my Hall of Fame induction, and I I invited him there. I wanted him there because I wanted to point out how much he he helped me as a 19-year-old kid pitching in Missoula, Montana. You know, in my career with one more start, a bad start, my career might have ended right then. And uh, he pitched me every four days, pitched me a little relief. I ended up pitching 245 innings. But my my roommate and teammate, Sandy Valdespino, unfortunately, Sandy uh, passed away about, about a month ago. We were quite a pair. He was a a five foot, six inch black Cuban. And I was a six foot, five inch white Dutchman. (laughs) But every day after the, after the game, the night before we'd say, skip two o'clock tomorrow, you're going to be out at the park. And we would go out and we'd, we'd practice, we'd work out for a couple hours and then we'd play the game that night. But yeah, I, I think that the human body is capable of doing so much more than today's athletes allow it to do. And that's because they have, whether it's medical people or whoever telling them, "No, you can't do that," and and they're getting fed with bad information.
0: Yeah, I would agree that the whole the whole idea is for them to play longer. Um, and that allows them to make more money if they play longer and stay healthy. And the method with which they're going about it, to me, doesn't match what they're trying to do. You know, as you
1: I'm going to play um, – I'm scheduled to play in a few weeks. I'm going to stop off in Baltimore on my way up to Vermont, and I'm playing in uh, Cal Ripken. Uh, Cal and Billy have a golf event there, a charity event. I'm playing that. And um, I got a chance briefly at the Hall of Fame to chat with Cal a little bit, but I've never really had uh, – a deep conversation with him so i want to ask him what his routine was and of course if i were a player today that's what i would do okay you played in a gazillion straight games and i know you hurt i know this ache and that ache. so how did you do that how, how did you protect your body how did you train it uh that's who i want to talk to to see how how he did what he did and i don't think he just sat down and did anything as a young kid, I have a feeling that with his dad being a baseball guy, that they practiced an awful lot of baseball in their youth.
0: Yeah. And you have to learn, you have to practice. The Practice can't be under ideal conditions all the time. If that's the case, then you can never play when it's not ideal. Uh,
1: Yeah. What practice does for you is, and I had a, a minor league manager tell me this in terms of playing the game. He said, if you can learn to do The ordinary things in an extraordinary fashion, that's the best you can do. You want to be able to, like Derek Jeter, when Derek came up, they were talking about A-Rod, Garcia Parr, Ray Ordonez. Everybody was flashier. They were going to be better than Derek. Well, no, they weren't because Derek did the ordinary things in an extraordinary fashion day after day. I love that. that's, That's where an athlete can develop some longevity.
0: I love that. It's a great message to the kids and even the pros instead of chasing that shiny object and probably a good, a good point for us to, to uh, close out on. Are are there any other things that you want to get across today or any messages you want to close out with?
1: I think the big message, if you're a baseball fan and I'm looking forward to it, I hope it lives up to its billing is uh, Pablo Lopez has scheduled a pitch against Garrett Cole on Sunday afternoon. Pablo Lopez may be a name a bit, uh, foreign, no pun intended. He's from Venezuela, but he was, he is one of the best up and, you know, why I shouldn't say up and coming young. He's 20, he's got six years in the game, but a lot of people haven't heard of him. He's the pitcher. The twins gotten a trade for uh, Luis arise. And, uh, that's, that could be quite a pitching matchup. So I'm, I'm going to pay close attention to that Sunday.
0: Yeah. We're going to tune in also. I was uh, a little disappointed with the twins jumping out 11, nothing, but, uh, that game still ended in a, in a good fashion. Both teams still battle. I did not like them bringing in a position player to pitch at the end uh, with the they Yankees. Gotta,
1: they got to they got to do away with that. That's of course again we're we're just beating our head against a wall talking about it. But that's why a hundred games a season or seven inning games or something is you just got to eliminate this having to watch a position player come in. And of course. Canseco did it, and we found out he hurt his elbow. And yep. hurt Jose Conseco. So maybe one of these days, if a position player suffers a serious injury, we don't want that to happen. But if it does, maybe they'll come to their senses and eliminate that.
0: I said the same thing last night. How dangerous that is! He's throwing batting practice speed at not maybe at best, and he's never seen that ball come back that quick. And I fear for that myself. But Jim, great show as usual. Uh, Cot's corner always delivers for us, and I appreciate your time today and all the knowledge you give to our audience and 15,700 subscribers and counting. uh, Continue to download, listen, like, subscribe, rate, and review. We're going to attack the analytics of these podcasts uh, just like we're doing it in baseball. We'll keep continuing to provide you with great content, Apple, Amazon, Spotify, or Stitcher, whatever your streaming device is. Make sure you let me know if we don't subscribe to it. Hit us up on Facebook, Instagram, or Twitter. We're very active there now on Facebook. The guys got me out of my cave. I was the last man to Facebook. So I'm here, 72 countries, grassroots to Major League Baseball front offices. We're just trying to build a better baseball IQ out there. And Jim our Hall of Famer, you do that every week. We appreciate you, Jim, so much.
1: Well, thank you. I I enjoy the visits every week. I look forward to our
0: next one. As do I. And with that, our audience, we're signing off here with Cots Corner. Have a great weekend. Make sure you tune in for the Twins and the Yankees game. Watch out, watch for Pablo Lopez.